Hello and welcome to the death of the Roman Republic. Chapter 14, Dictator for Life. Last week, Julius Caesar had wrapped up his civil war for the most part against the Pompeians and Optimates. Their war to tear him down had failed as Caesar defeated their great commander Pompey Magnus at Pharsalus. When he chased the surviving Pompey to Egypt, he found Pompey assassinated. Apparently furious, Caesar inserted himself into Egyptian politics and arbitrated the Egyptian civil war, eventually leaving Egypt under the control of his lover, Queen Cleopatra. Caesar ended his own civil war at the Battle of Thapsus in the province of Africa. His enemies were dead or fled to Spain. Caesar had won control of Rome. Caesar now had to prove that he deserved to win, was lawful and righteous, and that he was good for the Republic. Otherwise, someone else may rise to tear him down again. Our essential question in this episode is, why did Julius Caesar do what he did? As a content warning for this episode, there is mention of suicide. The victorious Caesar returned to Rome in July 46 BCE. It was time to celebrate. He gave the people 40 days of Thanksgiving feasts for his victory over King Juba in Africa. Then, Caesar celebrated a series of triumphs, where once he had given up his right for a triumph to stand for consul, now he had four for victories over Vercingetorix in Gaul, Ptolemy XIII in Egypt, King Pharnaces in Asia, and King Juba in Africa. Tactfully, these were all victories over foreigners. Caesar was not celebrating how many Romans he killed, even if King Juba was allied with the Optimates. While Pompey had boasted three triumphs, with victories in Europe, Asia, and Africa, now Caesar had four triumphs, one on each continent to match, and an extra. His captured foreign leaders like Vercingetorix of Gaul, Arsinoe of Egypt, and King Juba's young son were paraded around Rome. With them was his mighty army, who also paraded all the wealth they had seized. Caesar himself was pulled on a chariot, dressed as the chief god Jupiter, and the red and purple tunic of the victorious general. Vercingetorix was ritually strangled at the parade's end, as per tradition. Why, you little? The more sympathetic Arsinoe and infant were allowed to live. Arsinoe would eventually be moved to Greece, and King Juba's infant son would be raised in Rome. Caesar also provided Rome with theatrical performances and gladiatorial games for the people to enjoy. Are you not entertained? Caesar was sure to reward his men. While soldiers traditionally served for 16 years, Caesar paid them all for that length of service and more. Additionally, Caesar gave money to Rome's poorest inhabitants as well as bread and olive oil. When some of his soldiers incited riots, jealous they had to share Caesar's wealth, Caesar had the instigators executed. With Rome in better spirits, Caesar found himself installed as dictator for a third time by a senate very friendly to him, either because they were his allies or were spared by him. Caesar had given up his first dictatorship after just 11 days. The second, he technically held for a year, but spent most of it fighting overseas. This term as dictator was supposed to last 10 years, and he was allowed to simultaneously be consul for 10 years. Caesar was given this dictatorship for so long because Rome was clearly plagued with a lot of issues and needed a strong leader to restore the Republic. Additionally, since Pompey's sons Gnaeus and Sextus escaped to Spain, there was a threat in the West, necessitating a state of emergency. As dictator, his authority could not be legally trumped. Not by the Senate, by the consuls, not by the tribune's veto. 
For the gifts he freely gave the Roman people, he had their support, and there was no living Roman with as much actoritas, influence, and power as he. Every senator and magistrate was subordinate to him, as well as Rome's armies, as well as Rome's treasury. At the start of the Civil War, Caesar claimed he only wanted to protect his prestige and rights that the Ottomans were going to take away. When Caesar crossed the Rubicon, his end goal wasn't to become a tenured dictator, but that was the situation he now found himself in. Technically, his civil war was not yet over, with Pompey Magnus's sons still at large. Yet for the most part, his most important enemies were dead or pardoned. But with the external threat of Pompey's sons and all the internal issues Rome was facing, Rome was in a state of emergency and needed a dictator to lead it. Like Sola, after winning a bloody civil war, Caesar had the authority to do whatever he wanted. Caesar made himself very busy doing just that. Judgments for Caesar, dictator of Rome. To show his quality. The Rome that the dictator assumed control of was on life support. His civil war proved how weak the Republic was at preventing disaster and providing for its citizens. It was clear the Republic had been led by divided politicians invested in their own self-interest, and were willing to tear the Republic apart to serve their interests. This dying Republic was failing to serve its citizens, and Caesar wanted to change that. The first people Caesar provided for were his loyal veterans. For those who served their full terms, Caesar gave them the land they were entitled to. While Sola more ruthlessly took land from Italian communities, Caesar was more delicate, giving Italian communities fair monetary compensation for giving up their land. He also utilized properties of his dead enemies, as well as land in Gaul and North Africa. Keeping these veterans happy was good for Caesar and good for Rome, as they wouldn't be threatening an uprising. In addition to settling veterans, civilians in Rome were resettled across the Republic, giving some poor citizens in the cramped, dirty city the opportunity to start life anew on land of their own. My house is in the hills above Tehillo. Very simple place. Pink stones that warm in the sun. Um, kitchen garden that smells of herbs in the day. Jasmine in the evening. Next, Caesar rewarded his loyal subordinates, most of whom were officers who served with him in his wars. Caesar greatly expanded the number of magistrates, where once there were normally 20 quaestors, Caesar appointed 40, where once there were eight praetors, they were now 16. While Caesar could have held the consulship he went to war for, for 10 years straight, he often gave up that position for the year and allowed others to have the prestige of the consulship. Of course, whatever any of these people actually wanted was irrelevant, because the dictator Caesar's authority would always win. Nonetheless, these positions, like the consulship, were a good reward for loyal followers, who gained the prestige of holding the consulship even if Caesar was the true authority. More practically, all these extra officials added desperately needed administrators to a gigantic empire, and Caesar created many new managers to help him run it. I'm Mr. Mr. Manager! While Caesar made the decisions, Caesar now had a lot more help to enforce them. Furthermore, anyone who was made a quaestor automatically became a senator. This, along with Caesar being able to appoint senators, allowed him to fill the ranks of the Senate to over 900, despite having been thinned by the Civil War. Caesar also advanced the career of his young great-nephew, Octavius. He made sure the boy received some small honors for his actions defeating the Ottomans in Africa, 
even though the 16-year-old boy was in Italy for the whole war. Well, that was a freebie. He also made the 16-year-old a priest of one of Rome's many cults and later in charge of one of the games for the city of Rome. The teenager treated Romans to gladiatorial games and chariot races. Are you not entertained? Caesar was giving his great-nephew a head start, even if it would be decades before Octavius could seriously affect Roman politics. There weren't many outcries of nepotism from the Senate because many owed their lives to Caesar, whether because he spared them or advanced their careers. But Caesar didn't have an actual need for the Senate. As dictator, he could pass whatever he felt was necessary and good for the Republic. I am the Senate. Caesar issued decrees and laws as if they were passed by the Senate and invented lists of senators who attended fake debates. Cicero received letters of thanks from peoples in various communities for his support for falsified meetings he never attended. Caesar readily forgave most Pompeians or Optimates who once fought against him and offered them pardons. Cicero and Marcus Junius Brutus were among many who returned to Rome to participate and serve in Caesar's government. Cicero himself thought the Republic was healing and heading toward a brighter future. I love what I'm seeing. I love what's going on right now. This is what it's all about. His only wish was that Caesar would restore the Republic to its original condition, not as a dictator making these quick changes without oversight, but back to elected consuls running the Republic with a strong Senate to guide them. But Caesar didn't. He was very obviously breaking the Republic's precedents and traditions and bending the rules to the greatest degree possible while, legally, holding on to unlimited power with a tenured dictatorship. After all, the measures he was passing were legitimately stabilizing the Republic. Potentially angry soldiers were discharged and given their land. Former enemies were forgiven. Caesar's most loyal subordinates were first rewarded, and politicians and common folk could rest a little easier not having to worry about picking the wrong side in a civil war. The merciful Caesar's victory was everyone's victory. It's about sending a message. Caesar used his vast power to improve the lives of average Roman citizens. He reworked the free grain distribution system Rome already had in place to make it more efficient and encouraged doctors I need a doctor. and teachers you need a teacher. across the Republic's territory to live in Rome and offering them full citizenship. Apparently inspired by the Library of Alexandria, Caesar tasked the scholar Terentus Varro, a former enemy and Pompeian, with creating a library of the greatest Greek and Latin works. Caesar imposed laws to keep Rome orderly, like laws that ensured the city streets would be more regularly cleaned and infrastructure maintained. He also spent money on new buildings, which gave a job to the unemployed, improved the city, and allowed him to leave his mark on it. Besides his own construction projects, Caesar restored other buildings and monuments, including those built by Pompey. He also made laws against displays of wealth and extravagance. Practically, this ensured that merchants would only bring necessary goods to Rome for the people, not exotic delicacies for the rich. Politically, it prevented potential rivals from winning people over by flaunting their wealth, and didn't allow them to use their wealth to bring in expensive entertainment to dazzle the people, as Caesar once did. Outside of Rome, Caesar decided that governors couldn't serve longer than one or two years. Practically, this meant governors were more constantly being rotated out, reducing the damage a corrupt governor could do. Politically, it prevented anyone from staying in a province for, I don't know, eight years? And building a loyal following through conquest that could one day start a civil war. Of course, not all Pompeians made it back to Rome to be pardoned by Caesar. 
Pompey Magnus's sons, the 30-year-old Gnaeus Pompey and 22-year-old Sextus Pompey, escaped to Spain. Caesar's governor of Spain was one of his loyal subordinates, Quintus Cassius, who, for all his faults, was hated by his Spanish subordinates. Many Spaniards declared allegiance to the young Pompeys, and Quintus died in his escape attempt out of Spain. Some of Caesar's Spanish legions were now switching to the Pompeian side. Pompey Magnus had fought in Spain against Sertorius, and that's a callback, and had made many friends there years before. His sons Gnaeus and Sextus now cashed in some favors and added even more soldiers to their army. Caesar left Rome to take care of the situation himself. The Pompeys had 13 legions, and Caesar only brought eight, only two of whom were his veterans. Caesar had wanted the young Octavius with him to gain experience in warfare, but it might have been for the best that the teenager fell ill and was delayed. As usual in Spain, the war was brutal. Caesar did not quickly find an open battle to prove which army was superior. Instead, the war was first marked with sieges on Pompeian strongholds. Fortunately for Caesar, as soon as he arrived, Pompeians started defecting to his side. Gnaeus Pompey executed soldiers he suspected made effect. Caesar found open battle by the town of Munda. By this point in the war, between casualties and defections, Caesar had a little more men than the Pompeys, but would attack uphill. When Caesar's attack was about to fail, Caesar himself advanced 10 paces from the front line and reformed his men to attack. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Caesar's attack succeeded, and his army won the day. Gnaeus Pompey was wounded, but escaped. He would be caught and executed a few weeks later, his head sent to Caesar. His younger brother Sextus would escape with a few ships to sea, no real threat to Gaius Julius Caesar. While a few Pompeians kept up the fight, they lacked the leadership of any significant politician. Still, Caesar lingered in Spain to eradicate their last strongholds. According to the historian Suetonius, who was born decades after this, the young Octavius recovered and finally arrived in Spain. He was shipwrecked and had to cross enemy territory to Caesar. His great uncle was impressed that he didn't get killed and was happy to have the youth accompany him and watch him beat down the last Pompeians. Boy, you are in for a show tonight, son. Rome celebrated 50 days of thanksgiving for Caesar's victory, truly ending the civil war. Caesar was given his fifth triumph, yet this triumph was different because Caesar was celebrating a triumph over Romans. While his earlier defeats were carefully over foreign enemies, Caesar now explicitly celebrated his violent conquest over fellow Romans. While he was the supreme power in Rome, Caesar was not immune to criticism. There was peace in the Roman world, but there was discontent among some politicians who were chafing under his leadership. Senators weren't used to being so impotent and their opinions being so meaningless. The only opinion that really mattered was Caesar's. Caesar also didn't present himself in the most modest light. The Senate had offered Caesar an excessive amount of honors to appease him, and Caesar refused most of them, but still accepted quite a few. While all Roman aristocrats like to flex the honors bestowed upon them, Caesar's were so many and so grand, he was far outshining everyone else. Nobody shines like you. With all these honors, Caesar's prestige in Octoritas was starting to look regal, like a king. During Senate meetings, Caesar would sit between the two consuls in a golden chair. He usually did not wear the mostly white toga politicians were supposed to wear, Instead, Caesar often wore the purple and red toga of a general celebrating a triumph. 
Caesar also wore laurels of gold on his head and wore cap-high boots like the kings of Alba Longa, who he claimed to be a descendant of. While Caesar's dictatorship had a 10-year term, this was upgraded to dictator for life. Now he would be a dictator as long as he wanted, and unlike Sola, there was no indication he was going to give it up. Which would make him a king? That is disgusting. Caesar tried to assuage the people's fear that he was becoming a king at the festival of Lupercalia. Priests wearing nothing but a loincloth would run through Rome, flicking women with goatskin whips, a blessing of fertility. Sounds like Mark Antony's kind of party. Mark Antony was a priest participating in the festival and nearly naked, ran up to Caesar sitting in his golden chair, his regal boots, his victorious red and purple toga, and his golden laurels. Antony offered him a royal diadem and urged him to take it and become king. The crowd was silent, waiting on bated breath to see if Caesar would take this crown. Caesar refused and the crowd cheered. Antony again tried to offer it, but Caesar again refused. This was very, like, 99% sure likely, pre-arranged by Caesar and Antony, and many called it out as theatrics at the time. Some said Caesar would have accepted the crown if the crowd had been excited for it. Caesar trying to refuse a crown only inflamed his regal association in the minds of some senators. This wasn't helped by Queen Cleopatra's visit to Rome before Caesar left to fight the Pompeys in Spain. She brought with her Ptolemy Caesarian, her and Caesar's child. Cleopatra and her Egyptians stayed at one of Caesar's houses. People were aware of their affair and speculated if Caesar had gotten a taste for the life of royalty in Egypt or even as a young man in the kingdom of Bithynia and now aspired to be king of Rome. There were also rumors that the dictator wanted to make the Republic's new capital Alexandria so he could be closer to his queen. Caesar and Cleopatra probably resumed their affair but it wasn't like their months-long pleasure cruise. Caesar was constantly busy with an empire that spanned the Mediterranean to upkeep. As the Roman people watched the lavish games that Caesar sponsored, they wished Caesar would stop dictating letters to his scribes and enjoy the games with them. Are you not entertained? However, even if Caesar was busy, he certainly enjoyed having his witty, intelligent queen around. Cleopatra's official business in Rome was to confirm her status as monarch. As her father demonstrated, her ability to hold the Egyptian throne was dependent on Rome's approval. Caesar's Senate approved of her rule, and Roman troops were stationed in Alexandria to support the rightful queen. Cleopatra also helped fix Caesar's Roman calendar with modern science. The Roman calendar had consisted of 355 days, and over centuries, this required priests to constantly modify it, so seasons roughly corresponded with the month they were associated with. This new calendar was calculated by an Egyptian astronomer with 365 and a quarter days in a year. Two new months would be added, and one would bear Julius Caesar's name, July. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. This calendar is called the Julian calendar. Her throne safe and her relationship with the most powerful man in the Mediterranean strong, Cleopatra left Rome around the same time Caesar left for Spain to fight the Pompeys. She returned to Rome in 44 BCE, once her Caesar had returned victorious from Spain. Caesar also had increasing associations of divinity. In the eastern provinces, Caesar was honored like a god. It was common in these societies for people to treat their overlords like gods, one such example being Cleopatra and her family. Caesar was not the first Roman to be honored as such, 
However, Caesar also got to add a pediment to his house, making it look more like a temple, and there was a new Julian priesthood created and temple to be built in honor of Caesar's mercy to his enemies. Statues of Caesar also started appearing in temples and at public festivals among the statues of gods. Cicero was now a lot less optimistic. Caesar was king of the Republic in all but name and showed no desire to give up his unlimited dictatorship and let the elected magistrates and the Senate lead the Republic again. I'm a bit sad. Actually, I'm lying. I'm quite devastated. The dictatorship was an office for emergencies, but with triumph over Pompey's sons, there wasn't an apparent emergency. Caesar continued to hold his supreme power, violating the Republic's values like sharing power so no one man was supreme. Senators like Cicero despaired every day that Caesar's dictatorship grew further away from the traditional ideal Republic. He can't keep getting away with it! Marcus Junius Brutus, son of Servilia, began to praise his uncle Cato the Younger and encouraged Cicero to also write in praise of Cato. The praises of Caesar's enemy and his classical Republican values antithetical to Caesar's current government were widely circulated. A more violent dictator like Sola never would have allowed this and would have punished anyone who would have criticized his rule. I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want his house burnt to the ground. Caesar, in response, released his own book criticizing Cato and his eccentric behavior, trying to persuade Romans not to idolize the man who was a major part in forcing Caesar to war. Yet Caesar didn't succeed, and Cato the Younger would be remembered fondly for his ideals. As said before, this next statement is to understand the impact of Cato's death and not glorify it. The Romans admired how Cato refused to compromise his values. Caesar's regime was not repressive, and people's lives were slowly improving with the stability and improvement he brought, but discontent remained. Many distinguished people had died in Caesar's war. Caesar tried his best to win more people over to his side, like readily forgiving his enemies, but ultimately, just like Gaul, Caesar had won control of the Republic through military conquest, and just like Gaul, he had to show Romans it was better to tolerate his supremacy rather than oppose it. It was better to live under Caesar and survive than fight him and die. Many senators were put off by Caesar's behavior. Besides all his honors and being able to make any decision he wanted without needing to consult them, there were a few instances that further troubled and enraged them. Caesar had been at war for over a decade, and as a supreme commander, never had to consult anyone. Caesar kept this mindset as dictator, as it was easier to make decisions by himself or a small group of associates for the Republic. There were too many problems that needed to be addressed that would take too long for the Senate to debate and not necessarily get the outcome that he wanted. Tradition and formality only got in the way of the quickest solution, the stroke of a stylus. However, Caesar's breaches in decorum illustrated to some senators just how little he thought of them. In one instance, while in the middle of conducting the Republic's business by himself, he did not rise to greet the consuls who interrupted him. While he was dictator and outranked the consuls, many stewed at the lack of respect for the Republic's highest elected officers. Caesar, of course, knew that some were stewing under his rule, but he believed they would eventually come around. Life under Caesar was better for everyone. For a while, Caesar had bodyguards with him, but released them after the Senate took an oath of loyalty to him. Furthermore, Caesar knew that as much as he might be hated, if anyone killed him, civil war, death, and anarchy would follow. It was in everyone's best interests to let him keep ruling the Republic.
Caesar wasn't long for Rome. On March 18th, 44 BCE, he was leaving to make war in Dacia, and then Parthia to avenge Crassus. He was planning to be gone three years, although such a large-scale war would take much longer. Winning these wars, Caesar would bring home clean glory, not fighting any Romans under any circumstances, but beating foreigners into submission, a classic Roman hero. He would even get to show Octavius a thing or two, who was stationed in the east, ready to fully experience how Romans made war. On March 15th, three days before Caesar would march away for war, Caesar was greeted in the morning by his friend, Decimus Brutus. Caesar had not been planning to meet with the Senate that day. Apparently, the morning sacrifices made his wife Calpurnia nervous. I'm not superstitious, but I'm, I am a little stitious. However, Decimus convinced Caesar to attend nonetheless. The Senate was meeting in the stone theater constructed by Pompey Magnus, and Caesar had recently ordered his old friend's statues restored around the city. As Caesar arrived and the Senate was convening, Antony was led away by a senator as other senators clustered around Caesar. One asked for his brother to be pardoned, and the others chimed in, asking for mercy. Caesar ignored them. Then, a senator grabbed Caesar's toga and pulled it down. The senator Casca, who had been behind Caesar, drew a hidden dagger and slashed at the dictator, only grazing him. Some historians say Caesar fought Casca, grabbing at him or stabbing at him with his long stylus. Then, all the senators that surrounded Caesar drew their daggers and stabbed. In the maelstrom of blades and blood, a few assassins injured each other, like Marcus Junius Brutus. Stabbed and cut 23 times, the dying dictator covered his head with his toga. Gaius Julius Caesar didn't want to be seen so undignified. He died at the feet of the statue of Pompey Magnus on the Ides of March. There were around 60 senators in on the conspiracy to assassinate Caesar. Not only were they former Pompeians and Optimates, once Caesar's sworn enemies, but Caesarians who had been loyal to him and prospered under his dictatorship. Trebonius had served Caesar in Gaul and in his civil war and became a consul. Decimus, the man that led Caesar to his death, served him in Gaul and in the civil war, was made a consul by Caesar and was included in Caesar's will. Whether they were prospering or not, ideologically, they were united. No single person should hold so much power in the Republic. The solution? It's simple. We uh, kill the, the dictator. <laughs> Every conspirator must have realized their careers could advance farther without Caesar. Competition among each other drove senators to outperform each other, but Caesar had outperformed everyone to the point that he needed to be removed from the game. And after Caesar was dead, they would be the heroes who restored the Republic. They would suddenly be very popular and very electable. Once again, the richest and most established families could use their deep pockets to bribe the most people and make it back when they squeezed a province dry or started a war. The republic these conspirators wanted to bring back was one in which they succeeded the most, which never would have happened under Caesar's unlimited dictatorship. Apparently, Mark Antony was invited to the conspiracy by Trebonius when Antony and Caesar were on the outs. However, Antony did not join and apparently did not tell anyone, feeling his friend Trebonius was just airing frustration about Caesar's unlimited rule. Antony eventually fell back into Caesar's good graces. Caesar also surely heard some rumors, but the names of the conspirators were so varied. Beyond that, men he absolutely trusted, like Decimus, who was written into his will, wanted to see him dead? 
No, Caesar believed the rumored conspiracies against him were illegitimate, and soon enough, he would be in Dacia and Parthia. Who would be so foolish enough to assassinate him and surely invite civil war back to the Republic? Going back to Rome's nearly mythological history, Romans vitriolically hated monarchs since they expelled their last king Tarquinius Superbus. The man who supposedly drove him out was named Lucius Junius Brutus. Appropriately, two of his descendants were conspirators. The previously mentioned Decimus Brutus, who was a long ally to Caesar, and his more high-profile cousin, Marcus Junius Brutus, son of Servilia and nephew of Cato the Younger, Caesar's most ardent ideological enemy. It was Marcus Junius Brutus and Gaius Cassius Longinus who were the leaders of this conspiracy. Both had chosen to fight for Pompey and were pardoned by Caesar. Both were currently serving Caesar's dictatorship as praetors. Cassius was the hero who brought back the remainder of Crassus's army after his disastrous invasion of Parthia. He was married to Brutus's sister. Brutus was the most well-known politician of all the conspirators. He was respected and had become entrenched in Cato's strict code of honor and what the Republic should be. He had grown closer to his uncle while he was alive, as Brutus divorced his first wife and quickly married Cato's daughter. Brutus may have even felt guilty, as when Cato committed suicide in Africa, Brutus was serving Caesar as governor of Cisalpine Gaul. Of all the conspirators, it may have been Brutus who had the purest of intentions in the assassination. His family's legacy was getting rid of tyrants, and adopted ideology of Cato the Younger and his idealized republic compelled Brutus to take action. Brutus wanted to minimize the bloodshed and refused the suggestion to kill Antony. It was why Antony was led away from Caesar for the assassination, so he would not try to physically interfere. And now the deed was done. The dictator was dead. There were 60 or so senators covered in blood. They were the heroes, the restorers, the liberators of the Republic. No longer subordinate to an evil man who made himself king and stole their freedom. Now finally could the people elect the best magistrates to lead Rome, and the Senate could guide the Republic to prosperity instead of the whims of a single man. The Roman Republic was saved. Hundreds of senators, including Cicero, completely unaware of the conspiracy, watched the assassination of Caesar. Brutus called that Cicero should take the lead. Cicero, and every senator like him, fled in terror. Our essential question this episode was, why did Julius Caesar do what he did? Go ahead and pause if you'd like to reflect on your answer. Julius Caesar did what he did in his dictatorship and last stage in life because he thought he was invincible. Caesar had overcome his greatest rival Pompey, and many of his other rivals were dead. He was right in assuming that there was no Roman as militarily powerful as him, as rich as him, or had as many loyalists to him. Caesar also felt he was invincible because he was winning the people's love. With his unlimited dictatorship, Caesar used his unlimited power to improve the lives of Romans. For a very long time, it had been clear the Republic had not provided for its citizens and failed to keep peace. Under Caesar's dictatorship, peace and prosperity would return, and Caesar put in a lot of hours to ensure this. Caesar thought he was adequately rewarding his loyalists like his veterans and subordinate politicians, and expanded the quaestorship and praetorship to give himself more administrators and increase their prestige. Caesar thought he was keeping politicians happy enough and that he would not be challenged. But what Caesar did not appreciate was breaking just enough rules to upset enough politicians to unite to overthrow him. Many politicians stewed as they realized that as long as Caesar lived, 
the best they could do was be the second most important politician in the Republic, and there was a big gap between first and second. And despite Caesar thinking he was sharing enough prestige and political offices, many politicians felt this wasn't adequate. His friends like Trebonius and Decimus served in the highest elected office of consul, yet turned on Caesar as they were inferior to the dictator's powers and inferior to the dictator's prestige and actoritas. Part of the reason Caesar thought he was invincible was because he thought everyone knew, without him keeping the peace, more civil war and bloodshed would follow. Next week, we look at life after Caesar, Rome's reaction to his assassination, who emerges to lead the Republic, and if Caesar was correct. Please consider checking out Death of the Roman Republic podcast on YouTube at Death of the Roman Republic podcast. Re-listen to favorite clips and share with friends and help them discover the show. Link to the channel is in the podcast notes. Thank you. You can follow the show on Twitter at D-O-T-R-R-Pod, where we got a lot of Ides of March memes, if you are interested, as well as an educational summary for this episode. So go ahead and check it out at D-O-T-R-R-Pod on Twitter. Feel free to subscribe and rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to contact the show via email, you can email dotrrpod at gmail.com. That's dotrrpod at gmail.com to contact the show. Thank you for listening. All that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show. content. Uh, this is a reconstruction of what I imagine was heard and said at the assassination of Caesar, and I realize what you will hear may sound like a joke that trivializes violence, but this is not meant to poke fun at death and assassination. My goal was to convey the variety of emotions in this moment through clips in popular culture. There are clips of people from Caesar's perspective, from the assassins' perspective, and if you're interested in something more serious and accurate, Caesar's assassination has been reenacted hundreds of times through media, and recently there have been a, quite a few good movies and TV shows that more gruesomely show what it looked like. One man surrounded and stabbed 23 times by men he thought were his friends. It's truly dark and brutal. If you have a younger listener, you will probably want to end the pod here as to not give them the perception that violence is a trivial thing because it's not. Some clips are also on the precipice of using explicit language, but this segment is technically clean, but very violent sounding. For mature audience listeners who understand, this is not meant to make light of a man's assassination, but trying to educationally convey emotion through pop culture, this is for you. I'm about to end this man's whole career. This is bad. This is very, very bad. Oh! You can do this to me. We have 
at two, Brute? Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again.